<laughs> Believe it or not, we will finish John chapter 14 today. <laughs> We've been here a while. There's a lot in this passage of Scripture. Just by way of a very, very brief review, this chapter <clears throat> is the beginning of the farewell discourse. Preparation for his imminent departure and also for preparation in their apostolic ministry, which is going to begin in a short period of time. He has told them things that they weren't ready to hear. One, that he has told them over and over again that they are just now getting to understand, and that is that he is going to die, that he is going to leave them. They can't go with him. They followed him closely for three and a half years, and they are not prepared for this separation. He's told them that one of his very own would betray him, that Peter would deny him, and he continues to prepare them for the imminence of the cross. So we looked last week and we dropped off at verse 26, and I was going to try to rush through the last 10 minutes or so of that section, section of Scripture, and I decided to pause since we were already late in the hour. And so we're going to look today at verses 27 to 31, take a little bit of a different direction, and what was going to be about 10 minutes is going to be about 40 minutes because there is so much information in here that when you have to rush through, you must leave it out. Attention spans just aren't that long. 30 minutes is about all anybody can really give, and so it's hard when you get to 50 minutes and beyond. So we're going to look at verses 27 to 31 as a closure to <clears throat> this first section of the farewell discourse, which runs all the way through the end of chapter 16. So here's what we're going to look at. John 14, verses 27 to 31. Here's what God's Word says to us today. Jesus is speaking. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So we're going to look at three things that the believer enjoys that is the closure of this first section of the farewell discourse. So Roman number one in our outline, the believer enjoys peace. Now, at the beginning of this discourse, Jesus said in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled, nor be afraid. And here he expands on it a little bit further in verse 27 and says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Now, that phrase, peace I leave with you, is derived from the very common Jewish greeting, shalom, which means Peace be with you. It's something that is said upon entrance. It is also something that is said upon exit. But that is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not giving to them a very light greeting in the middle of this discourse. Excuse me one moment.
So the disciples are incredibly overwhelmed with the reality that Jesus is going away. The earthly kingdom that they fully expected for Jesus to inaugurate just a few days earlier at the triumphal entry, it's becoming very clear to them that this isn't going to happen. They are asking themselves this question, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What is going to become of us since we have been such closely identified as followers with Christ, He's going to die, He's going to go away, and we can't go with Him. So the disciples are overwhelmed. There is an abundance of personal conflict. And in the midst of the swirling that their brains are going through, Jesus says, Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be afraid. So there's a contrast that we're going to look at here. The first part of this is the world's peace. What is the world's peace? Well, the world's peace is very simply the absence of trouble, hardship, or difficulty. And part of my preparation for this, I came across a couple of facts that I thought were pretty amazing. It has been said that in the last 3,500 years, the world has only known 300 years of peace. Historians have estimated that there have been some, in, in, in the last 5,500 years, historians have estimated that there have been more than 800 peace treaties that have been violated, and that there are an estimated 8 billion casualties as the result of war. The world's peace is the absence of trouble and hardship and difficulty. In the world, peace only comes when everything is going great. And for many, many people, peace only comes when I'm getting my way all the time. It's what I think, it's what I want, it's the way I want. And if it's not that way, it's conflict. The peace of the world is totally dependent upon circumstances. Listen to this. According to a Washington Post article, a third of American adults show signs of clinical anxiety, which means that 33% of U.S. adults could go to a psychiatrist and they would click all of the check marks for being clinically anxious. It is also said that 10% of Americans 12 years of age and up are under prescription antidepressants. Everywhere we turn, there is something to be worried about. There's problems in our society. Have you heard anything about racial unrest? Have you heard anything about protests and riots and crime as a result of the racial unrest? Have you heard anything about hatred and animosity? Have you heard anything other than crime being reported on the nightly news? There's problems in our environment. There are fires. There are hurricanes. There are other natural disasters that are wreaking havoc all around our world. There's problems in health. Have you heard anything about COVID-19? Have you heard anybody who says, if I get COVID-19, I'm surely going to die? Have you heard anything about cancer and heart disease? 
on and on and on it goes. There is no shortage of things in our world to cause us to be anxious, to remove from us any sense of peace in our existence. In the midst of all of this, Jesus says, My peace I give to you, my peace. I leave with you. Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus say that only to the 11 disciples in the upper room, only over the circumstance of His departure? Is that all that it's applicable to? No, my friend. When Jesus says, My peace I give to you, He's talking to you and me today. So as a contrast to the world's peace, which is the absence of any kind of conflict or hardship, We see the peace of Christ. The peace that Jesus speaks of and the peace that Jesus provides is not the absence of conflict. It is spiritual calm and hardship. You know, there's a a great visual analogy of this in the Gospels when they're out on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee And the storms are just raging all around them. And Jesus is sound asleep. And they're frantic. They're waking Him up. Lord, Lord, we're going to die. We're going to die. And Jesus simply says, Shh! And the storm is calm. Now, He has that capacity to rule over nature And if He has the capacity to rule that way over this natural world, do you think He has the capacity to simply say, shh, to us in the midst of our hardship and it not be a reminder of the peace that He provides for us? Three elements of this peace that Jesus provides. Letter A, there is peace of mind. Peace of mind is simply mental calmness in the face of difficult situations. What will I do? Where will I go? What is going to happen next? What if? What if? What if? Anxiety attacks, ulcers, other physical symptoms that manifest themselves in our bodies are in large part due to mental anxiety. This is why antidepressants are among the most prescribed medications in our country today. Letter B, there is peace of emotion. There is emotional stability which no sorrow, no danger, no suffering, no experience can take away from us unless we give it. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have a moment of anxiety or a moment of deep sorrow or grief in the midst of our difficulty. But you and I, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, are not to pitch our tent in the midst of that mental and emotional anxiety and dwell there until something changes. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I don't know what this is doing today. So, 
Why can we have peace of mind? Why can you and I have peace of emotion? Jesus tells us why. These things I have spoken to you. This comes at the end of the farewell discourse. So that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has overcome the world? Do you believe that when Jesus says, I have said all these things to you so that you can have peace in Me? Do you think He means that? Well, we need to explore, and we're not going to really do that in incredible depth today, is what does it mean to have peace in Him? Well, it's a relationship. It's not religion. It's not attendance. It's not a spiritual checklist. It is a relationship where you have calmness in mind and emotion because you identify yourself as being in Him. Peace of mind, peace of emotion, because Christ has overcome the world and that brings to us, let us see, a peace of confidence. A peace of confidence is a calm assurance that God is in control, that God is watching over me, that God is taking care of me, and that God is making more like Christ. His goal is not to make us happy. There is no shortage of teaching out there that will convince you, if you listen long enough, that God's goal is to make you happy, and they will almost go to the point to say, God is obligated to make you happy. It's your right as a child of God to be happy. And if you aren't happy, then God's not doing something that He ought to do. So is there something you can do that will help you earn favor with God? I listened to some stuff the other night. Wesley came in when I was in the midst of it. And I almost threw my remote at the TV. I was so angered by what I heard. This individual was quoting Luke 1.30, which says, the Holy, speaking to Mary, the Holy Spirit has found favor with you, or God has found favor with you, and the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and you will bring forth Jesus, the Son of God. She said, I am impressed that God wants to find favor in you. If you will sow a seed of $130 to my ministry, by the way, then God is going to find favor on you and provide you with an abundance of resources. That's what she said. That is a lie from the pit of hell, my friend. God is not obligated to make us happy. God's goal is not to make us happy. If God's goal was to make us happy, He would give us everything we wanted. And you and I ought to know enough about ourselves to know that if God gave us everything that we wanted, we wouldn't be happy. (laughs) Now, wrap your brain around that one if you can. Well, here's the deal. Hard times usually bring about God's purposes in our life of making us more like Him. You know, if you learn anything about the history of Israel... When things were going great, what did they do? They wandered away. They rebelled at the revelation God gave to them through the prophet. 
And God found them to be in sin, and then God disciplined them and brought about hard times. And they said, oh God, we have sin. Oh God, we love you. Oh God, we need you. And they repented, right? Cycle over and over and over again. You and I are pressed into the image of Christ through hardship and difficulty. God isn't being mean. God isn't angry. God isn't getting back at you like we would get back at someone who has hurt us. God is simply accomplishing His eternal spiritual purpose in us through hardship and difficulty by making us more like Christ. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things... If you got your Bible there, why don't you circle or underline all And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. All things for the good. Not everything that happens to us is good. I can attest to that, can't you? i got a long list of things that have happened in my life that aren't necessarily good. But it's God's purpose that those things be used by Him to shape me into who He wants me to be, and that is to be more like Christ. God works it out for our good by forcing us to understand how much we need Him, how far away from Him we really are, and allowing the potter to mold the clay. You and I are clay in the potter's hand. In difficult times, the question should not be, why is this happening to me? The question should be, God, what are you trying to teach me? That answer is only discovered in pursuit of a real growing relationship with Him. It is, in our, it is our union in Him, not through activities, not through an occasional obedience, not through spiritual motions, but in pursuing the relationship with Christ. He Himself becomes the source of our peace. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Now there's five ways that you and I secure peace with the Father. And letter I, justification or our salvation. We have peace with God Through our salvation. You and I used to be the enemies of God. We stood with our fist raised against God. We were aliens and we were far away from God. But through the great gift of salvation, we have been brought near to Him. We have been made right with Him. And we have been saved. We have been justified. A legal standing of innocence in the sight of a holy and a righteous God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pause right there and say this. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot and you will not know the peace of Christ. It is an impossibility. If we don't have peace with God... We cannot know anything about what spiritual peace feels like and looks like and lives out like in our life. 
Secondly, loving God's word. We find peace in loving God's word. Now, why is that true? Well, it's because God's word reveals to us who he is, what he's like, how we can please him, what a life submitted to Christ should look like. It is God's word that transforms us into who he wants us to be. Psalm 119, 165a, those who love your law have great peace. I believe that's true because those who love the word of God commune with God in his word and find peace in the midst of great circumstance and hardship and difficulty because they are absolutely confident in the sovereignty of God. God, I don't like what's going on. God, I didn't ask for this to go on. But I know you were there. I know you're in control. I know you're using this for my good. And therefore, I humbly and willingly submit to what this thing is in my life. God's Word brings about that capacity for you and I. Letter three, number three rather, obeying God's Word. It's not enough to know it, but we also have to do it. Because if we aren't doing it, then we are in conflict with God. And it may be that God has allowed circumstances and difficulty and hardship in our life not to prune us, but to discipline us because we have wandered away from the truth. Philippians 4.9 says this, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul wasn't perfect, but I would venture to say that Paul probably lived out the Christian life more perfectly than did anyone else. That's why he's credited with 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Paul knew something about obedience to God's Word in the midst of great difficulty and in great hardship. Is there anybody in the New Testament who suffered more than Paul did? Probably not. Is there anybody who knew the peace of God in the New Testament better than Paul did? Probably not. And I don't believe that's a coincidence. Number four, we find peace in prayer. Prayer is not a psychological comfort for you and I to deflect our challenges and our troubles to some distant impersonal deity. Prayer is communication with the God of this universe who has revealed Himself to us in His Word, showed us His love through the cross, and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always even to the end of the age, we experience that reality by communicating to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Number five, we experience the peace of Christ by being spiritually minded. You and I have an incredibly difficult challenge of a duplicitous mind. We are so immersed in the things and the ways of the world 
And God's word is a stark contrast to that immersion in the world. And we get so accustomed to the old patterns that are ours from being in the world that it's a challenge for us to be spiritually minded and we're not always aware when we aren't spiritually minded. And that's why it's so easy for Christians who don't love the Word and are, aren't obedient to the Word to know the difference between truth and truism and falsehood is they aren't spiritually minded enough. This is why you and I have to be completely dependent upon God's Word to be the anchor of our life, to reveal to us the truth about who He is and the depth of our need for Him so that we can be accurate and being spiritually minded. You know, when some unsuspicious individual listens to the health and wealth prosperity theology, they say, well, you know, that sounds pretty good to me. I'd like to have more stuff. I'd like to have less conflict and difficulty in my life. I'd like to have this physical ailment taken away from me. I kind of like that deal. Well, what about the the verses that say that through many tribulations we will enter into heaven? What about that one? Oh, I don't know if I like that. That doesn't sound very fun. That sounds like I may be really inconvenient. Let me stick with the stuff I really like. I want a lot of stuff. We have to be spiritually minded and we must pray that God would speak truth into us through His Word, revealing truth to us that we've heard in prayer. Not revealing in the sense that it's new truth, but it is a reminder of what we've heard and what we've read and what we know. Number, number, excuse me, Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, Paul's right there. Where are we going to find such things? In the world? In our own perspectives? In our own heartfelt desires? Not usually. We're going to find them in the Word. So if you find any of these things, dwell on them. That's the call for you and I to be spiritually minded. The result of his peace is very, very obvious. Now look back in John 14, verse 27. Part B. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Do not allow your heart to be troubled. Do not allow your heart to be fearful. Which means you and I have a choice. Our world can come crashing down in an instant. And we might be mentally frantic, we might be an emotional basket case, but that's not where we live. We live in Him. And we must be reminded, God, You are there. You've known about this from eternity past. You know how incredibly difficult this is going to be for me, but I trust you. I know you'll lead me and guide me through every step of the way. Do you believe God can do that? Do you believe God will do that? You see, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We have peace with God that is initiated in our salvation. The peace of God is God Himself. 
The peace that comes from God. God gives as a result of our obedience and our walk with Him. Sadly, many Christians do not experience this peace that Christ provides. I came across this poem in my, in my uh, study and preparation. I don't read poetry uh, by habit. Here's the poem. <clears throat> as children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because He was my friend. But then, instead of leaving Him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched them back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, what could I do? You never did let go. That's the reality that you and I have to be made aware of in our lives is these things that we cling to that you and I have no control over. Zero control over it. Who can control COVID-19? Who can control the racial unrest? Who can control the crime that takes place in our world? Not me. Not you. Not the body of Christ. The vast majority of the things that have us so worked up, we have zero control over. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be fearful. Now, number two in our outline. The believer enjoys joy. Now, that might sound kind of strange. Why don't you think about that for a second? The believer enjoys joy. That should be incredibly obvious. One of the saddest testimonies that exist within the body of Christ today is the joyless Christian. We all go through moments where we're not very joyful. We have the ebb and flow of life. But for far too long, we stay in the valley and we exhibit no joy in our life at all. The believer enjoys joy. Let's read verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, You heard, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you if you loved me. You would have rejoiced, you would have had great joy, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Now in, this, in these verses here, there are five sources of joy for the believer. Verse 28a, I go away. Jesus is talking about the cross. You see, the first source of joy for the believer is the cross. And if you hear that and you go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know all about the cross, you totally miss the point. You see, the chief source of joy for the Christian is the cross. Where would you and I be today without the cross? If there were no cross... If we had no knowledge of the cross, if we had no experience with the cross, where would you and I be today? We would be hopeless. We would likely be beyond anxious. We would be consumed with fear. We would likely be consumed with a greater sense of shame and guilt and regret because we know nothing about the forgiveness of Christ at the cross. You see, the chief source of joy for us is 
I go away. The cross. As brutal and as horrific and as unjust as the cross is, it is beautiful to you and I. Because it shows us in a tangible way the validity of the immense love of God. We have been redeemed. We have been bought back by God. We have been brought near to God. Ephesians 2.13 You who were formerly, excuse me, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the cross. We have been reconciled. We've been made right with God, meaning we have a right standing with Him. We've been cleansed and forgiven of all of our sin. Colossians 2.14 Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We've been set free from the power of sin. We've been sanctified. We've been made holy. We have been perfected forever through the cross. Hebrews 10.14, by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We have peace with God through the cross. We have freedom to approach God through the doorway of the cross. If Jesus didn't go away, then He wouldn't have gone to the cross. You see, the cross is a beautiful thing for the believer. It is the source of our joy because it is a reminder of our union with Christ. It is a reminder of God's infinite love for us, of His forgiveness, of all that He has done in the instant that you and I were saved. The cross is the source of our joy. Secondly, a source of joy for the believer is the return. Jesus says in verse 28b, and I will come to you I go away, I'm going to the cross, but I am going to come to you. So this speaks of the resurrection to the disciples in the now. It speaks of the resurrection that's going to occur in just three days. The resurrection is the evidence of our new life and of our hope for eternity. This is why we can read in 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's through the cross. It's through the resurrection Jesus' return for us that you and I have great joy. But this coming to us not only speaks of the resurrection, but it speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. John 6, excuse me, 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. You see, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and when He inhabits and indwells 
all believers at the instant of our salvation, He, Jesus, is coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Not an impersonal force, not an impersonal being, but the Godhead of the Trinity communicated to us in the person of the Holy Spirit comes to us and brings to us the fullness of the deity to be with us forever. It also speaks of the eventual second coming of Christ. This coming is the parousia, which is Jesus' return to take His church home. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16-18. through For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Something very, very important. He's not delegating this to anybody else. There is no other being in heaven that's going to come to bring God's people home. It is going to be Jesus Himself. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let me ask you this question. Does the return bring you any joy in your life? Brother, if it doesn't, You've got a long, long time to wait until you understand what that means. The reality that Jesus is coming back for us is to provide us with not only a great sense of joy, but a great sense of expectancy and anticipation consummated in the biblical word for hope. Not wishful thinking knowing that we know that He is going to come back for us. So there's joy for the cross. From the cross, there's joy for His return. Thirdly, there is joy in the ascension. Verse 28c, If you loved Me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. You see, Jesus longed to be with the Father. Jesus longed to be back where He rightfully belonged. He didn't come to the earth kicking the sand, saying, God, I don't know why you did this to me. I didn't sign up for this stuff. Could we find another way to do this? Isn't there anything else we could do? That's not what Jesus did. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. But He also longed for the Father. If they really, really loved Him... They would want that as well rather than clinging to Him selfishly so they wouldn't have to go through all the stuff that they were undoubtedly going to go through. We read this in Mark 16, 19. So then when the Lord had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And Jesus said, I am home. I am with my Father. I am in my rightful place. Until I have to go back for an instant and bring them all home, I am home. The fourth source of joy for the Christian is the greatness of the Father. Verse 28d, For the Father is greater than I. Now, this is where, if we're not careful, we can read into statements like this an understanding that is inconsistent with the unity that exists within the Trinity. In essence, 
or in being, Jesus is equal with God. That's what he said all throughout the Gospel of John. I and the Father are one. If you know me, you know the Father. If you loved me, you'd love the Father. Jesus said that over and over and over. He asserted his deity and role and function. Jesus asserted his deity as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, in role and in function by coming to the earth, by becoming the atonement for mankind. He absorbed a submissive role during his earthly ministry. But Jesus was going back to his glorified state that he existed in from eternity past after he ascended back to the Father. The Father demonstrated his great love for and his power in Jesus. I I misphrase that. The Father demonstrated his great love for and his power by releasing Jesus from the flesh and all its limitations and all of its weaknesses, fatigue and hunger and thirst and sickness. The Father released Jesus from the world and all of its trials its tensions, its difficulty, its hardships, its suffering, its disease, its death. The Father released Jesus from the devil and all of his oppressions and all of his attacks, the temptations, the accusations, the condescension that came to Jesus at the instigation of the enemy. The Father released Jesus from the pressure of men and all their demands and all their threats and all their attacks. Just as Jesus was set free from the flesh, from the world, from the devil, and the pressure of life in this world, so is the child of God. You and I will one day be released from all of this. We will experience and enjoy what Jesus has known from all eternity, and that is the greatness of the Father. You and I ought to long to know that more than we long for anything else in our lives. Ultimately, we will learn that in heaven, but we are not to sit idly by and say, well, yeah, one day I'll figure all that out. We are to be pursuing that in the now so that we can enjoy the peace that comes from Christ and the joy that is ours in our union with Him. Now, the fifth source of joy we find is, number five, the confirmation of faith. This is in verse 29. Jesus says, now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Jesus died just as he said he was going to die. Jesus was raised just as he said he was going to be raised. And Jesus ascended to the Father just as he said he would ascend. He sent the Holy Spirit just as He said He would. He has given us every reason to believe in Him. We say we believe in the Word of God, don't we? We say we believe that it's eternal, that it's infallible, that it's inerrant. We say it's full of wisdom. We say it's full of truth. Well, you and I must put into practice what we say we believe by doing it. 
By rejoicing in the cross. By rejoicing in the return. By rejoicing in the ascension. By rejoicing in the greatness of the Father. By rejoicing in the confidence of the one in whom we have placed our faith. The believer enjoys peace and the believer enjoys joy in our union with him. Number three in our outline, the believer enjoys security. Verse 30, Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. So there's two facts about this security. The first fact is this, Jesus' victory over Satan. Did Jesus win? That's not rhetorical. Did Jesus win? (laughs) He better believe he won. Satan, the ruler of this world, was coming for him. Now, as the ruler of this world, this is a temporary providential allowance by the Father and in no way elevates the position of Satan to be equal with the Father or the Son or the Spirit. But God has given Satan limited power. God has given Satan access to the throne in some mysterious way because Jesus, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. I don't know how he has access to the Father. I don't know in what venue and or what avenue or what methodology. But this is not the first time that Satan has come against Jesus. Satan came against Jesus through the reign of Herod when King Herod ruled that all the male boys, all the male babies under two years of age be slaughtered in all of Jerusalem. The blood filled the river and it flowed red because of the attack of Satan, but Satan failed. He came against Jesus after 40 days in the wilderness through the temptations, but he failed. He came against Jesus through the religious leaders who were corrupt and sin-filled and hard-hearted. He incited them to hatred and with a desire to kill him, but he failed. And now Satan will come against Jesus in the form of a cruel and rugged cross. And And although Jesus will die, Satan will fail in overcoming him again. Rather than providing victory, the cross sealed Satan's defeat. 1 John 3, 8, part B. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. We have security in this life because Jesus was victorious over Satan. We don't fear death. We shouldn't fear life. We live in the shadow of the victory of the cross. We have security because of his victory, but also because of, number two, Jesus' obedience to the Father. Verse 31a, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do, as, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The Father commanded Jesus to go to the cross. He commanded Jesus to go to the cross to demonstrate to the world the love that God has. Jesus' obedience in carrying out the perfect 
eternal plan of redemption gives us security because there isn't anything else that has to be done. There is no deficiency in the work of Christ that requires you and I to add something to what He has done for us on the cross and our appropriation of that to our life through faith. He did everything the Father showed Him. He did everything. He said everything the Father told Him. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. And that brings you and I incredible security. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That's this commandment I have received from my Father. John 12, 27 and 28. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. You see, you and I enjoy security because of Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father. You and I have peace, not like the world has it, but peace that comes from Christ. You and I have joy, not like the world has joy, but we have joy because of who we are in Christ. You and I have security, not like the world has it, I don't know that the world has any security. But we have security because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did on our behalf. This passage of, excuse me, this section of the discourse concludes with these words, Get up, let us go from here. And now they begin their journey to the Garden of Gethsemane and then to the trials and then to Golgotha. Jesus has much more to say and he will continue to teach them and prepare them as they make their way towards Gethsemane. Think about this. Think about the things that you and I can enjoy as Christians. You know, we're probably going to enjoy a good meal today. We might even enjoy a good show on TV and a nice nap. We might enjoy the pleasure of a loving, fun-filled dog But that is not what is to be the source of peace and joy and security in our life. If as Christians the most joy we get out of life are in these temporary worldly things, you and I have missed tragically the tremendous blessing that is ours in Him. We're so busy stuffing our lives filled with full of substitutes, that we're often unaware of how these things replace our relationship with Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, we are thankful that you are a great God, that you are a loving God. We thank you that you're faithful and reliable. We thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you're gracious and you're merciful. God, we thank you that you have given to us all we need to know about you through your word. I pray that we would be drawn to your word as the source of life that it is. I pray that you would instill in us a greater peace, a greater joy, and a greater sense of security in a very tumultuous and a very uncertain world. 
There are so many people out there who feel like it's all unraveling, and yet we know that you safely and securely hold it all in your hand. And I pray, Father, that that would be the truth that we fixate on in these days ahead. We give you thanks for all that we know about you. Help us to live it out as faithfully as we can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him.